Act One of The Freaks in Idol of Suburbia by Arthur Wing Pinero. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Persons of the Play Ordinary Mortals Mrs. Herrick, nay Smith, a widow. Read by Linda Webster. Ronald, her son, read by Adrian Stevens. Sheila, her daughter, read by Matea Bracic. Lady Ball Jennings, her sister, read by Sonia. Sir Norton Ball Jennings, her brother-in-law, read by Alan Mapstone. Reverend Stephen Glynn, vicar of St. Paul's, Mole Park, her bachelor friend read by greg giordano mr edward waterfield m r c s her bachelor friend read by jake Melizia. collingridge her parlour-maid read by sandra schmidt extraordinary mortals horatio tilney laid of sergatini's world-renowned mammoth international hippodrome and museum of living marbles read by todd james eddowes late of segantini's world-renowned mammoth international hippodrome and museum of living marvels read by jim locke thomas quincy pratt late of segantini's world-renowned mammoth international hippodrome and museum of living marvels read by thomas peter julie maud pratt late of segantini's world-renowned mammoth international hippodrome and museum of living marvels read by jen broda rosa balmano late of segantini's world-renowned mammoth international hippodrome and museum of living marvels read by abai stage directions read by mira williams place marsden lodge grand avenue mole park the residence of mrs herrick time before the war those far-off days when in our ignorance small troubles seemed great and minor matters important mole park it is necessary to inform strangers to london is a suburb about twelve miles from charing cross act one mrs herrick gives a tea-party a fortnight passes act two sickness in the house part one morning part two afternoon part three evening a curtain will fall between the parts three weeks pass act three convalescence the freaks the first act mrs herrick gives a tea-party the scene is a drawing-room of the suburban type, prettily but conventionally furnished and decorated. In the wall facing the spectator, two windows opening to the ground give a view of a flower-garden and tennis-lawn, and beyond of a receding line of villas and gardens, suggesting that the house is one of an avenue of houses of a similar character. In the wall on the right is the fireplace, the grate being hidden by a bank of flowers, and on the farther side of the fireplace in the corner of the room 
there is a comfortable corner seat. On the near side of the fireplace a door opens into the room from a living hall, the scene of the second and third acts, and opposite this door, in the left-hand wall, there is a companion door opening from a passage. A semi-grand piano set obliquely its keyboard towards the windows, and a music-stool stand out into the room on the left. By the side of the piano there is a settee, and at the end of the settee an armchair. In the middle of the room, a few feet from the wall facing the spectator, is an oblong table with books and knick-knacks upon it. On the left of this table there is a chair, and in front of the table a fauteuil-stool. Close to the right-hand window are a small writing-table and a chair, and at the farther side of the fireplace there is another armchair. On the right-hand side of the room, balancing the group of furniture on the left, are a round table, two armchairs, and a second settee. The settee is on the right of the table, one of the chairs on its left, and the other chair behind the table. A marble statuette stands upon a pedestal between the windows, and some occasional chairs, a cabinet full of china, a case of music-books, a jardiniere, etc., occupy spaces not provided for in this description. There is a bell-push on either side of the mantelpiece. The light is that of a fine warm afternoon in June, and the window on the left is partly open. Note throughout, right and left, are the spectators right and left, not the actors. Sheila, a slim, graceful girl of twenty, is lying propped up by cushions on the settee by the piano, deep in a novel. Sir Morton and Lady Ball Jennings, unobserved by Sheila, appear in the garden and stroll past the windows from right to left. Lady Ball Jennings is carrying a sunshade, and Sir Norton's neck is protected by a handkerchief which falls from under his straw hat. As they disappear, the door on the right opens, and Ronald pops his head in. He is a good-looking, boyish young fellow, a year older than his sister. His dress suggests the city. Ronald, seeing Sheila and coming into the room. Hello, old thing. Hello. What's brought you home so early? Why this treat? Ronald, closing the door and advancing. Letter from Mum's. Letter from Mum's? Asking me to be on hand at four o'clock. Sheila, shutting her book. Same here. I've had one, too. You? Sheila rises and lays her book on the piano. Anything up, Sheila? Where is Mother? Sheila, smoothing herself out. In her bedroom. Bolted away directly after lunch. Might have been on board ship. Extracting a note from her waist belt. Then she sent me down this. Ronald, producing his pocket-book and taking a note from it. What on earth? Sheila, reading. My darling girl, be in the drawing-room at four without fail. I'm resting on my sofa. Don't disturb me. To Ronald. When did you get yours? Found it in the city this morning. Posted last night. Ronald, reading. My dearest boy... Do beg Mr. Lendenbaum, with my compliments, to allow you to leave the office early tomorrow. I particularly wish you to be home at four o'clock at latest, your loving mother. Why couldn't she have told us? Exactly. Sheila, puckering her brow. 
she's been jolly weird in her manner for days. Ronald? Eh? No chance that Mum's has screwed up her courage and means to revolt, is there? Put her foot down. On the necks of the tyrants, this afternoon. And can't do it without we're present, without our moral support. Bonnie Scotland, if only she would. By jinx. Oh, but she'd have prepared us, confided in us. Tisn't as if she didn't know our views. You're right. No reason for mystery. Sheila, with a wry face. Besides, her rotten old sense of duty. Poor Mums'll never go back on that. She'd let him jump on her chest first. Duty or no duty, I warn you, Sheila. Aunt Meg and Uncle Norton are rapidly making this house intolerable to me. And me? Beasts. Paupers. Locusts. Ronald walking away. Couple of arrogant, stuck-up non-entities. Kicking his legs about. Blow, dash, hang. Damn. Moving to the right. Damn, 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 damn. Collingridge, a neat, dignified parlour-maid, enters at the door on the right, followed by the Reverend Stephen Glynn. Collingridge to Sheila. Mr. Glynn. Sheila, giving her hand to Glynn. Vicar, dear. Glenn, a bluff, burly man of fifty with a short beard, as Collingridge withdraws. How are you, Sheila? Did you hear what I was saying as you came in? No. Sheila, whispering into his ear. Damn. Glenn, pushing her from him gruffly but kindly and going to Ronald. Just get away with you. <laughs> Ronald, on the left, shaking hands with Glenn familiarly. Well, Reverend. Well, you cheeky boy. To Sheila, who slips her arm through his. How's mother? The author of my being seems a bit nervy. She sent me round a note this morning. Note? Ronald to Glenn. Asking you to be here at four? Yes. Rain's notes. Showing her note. We also have been favoured. Ronald showing his note. Sheila and I. We can't make out why she should communicate with her offspring by letter. Pressing Glynn's arm. Don't you think it rummy? I might if I understood the meaning of the word. Now, Rev, no starch. Collingridge reappears, ushering in Edward Waterfield, a breezy, jovial man of seven and forty in the sober clothes of a doctor. Sheila going to him. Doctor! Hello, Doc. Waterfield, as Collingridge withdraws, shaking hands with Sheila. Well, pretty girl, and how are you? Still turning all the boys' heads? She wrinkles her nose at him impudently and puts out the tip of her tongue. Thank you. Perhaps you'll wait till I've asked to see it. Going to Glenn and shaking hands with him. I was just behind you, Vicar. You didn't hear me whistle. Glenn to Waterfield. 
How's old Mrs. Bembridge today? Waterfield, pursing his lips. Hmm. Shaking hands with Ronald as Glynn, muttering, Dear, dear, moves away. Ronnie, old chap. Ronald to Waterfield. I say, Doc, have you had a note from Mum's? This morning. Sheila, at his elbow. Asking you to turn up at four? Yes. Ronald, showing his note, then putting it into his waistcoat pocket. So have we all. Sheila, replacing her note in her belt after flourishing it at Waterfield. All of us. Waterfield, to Ronald and Sheila. What's the matter? You two kids been giving trouble lately, both of you? That's it. You've hit it, Waterfield. Sitting on the settee on the right. You and I are summoned to assist at the reprimanding of these young people for being naughty. Sheila, going to Glynn and standing over him. Naughty? Ronald, punching Waterfield in the chest playfully. Giving trouble. Sheila, to Glynn. My boots, the world doesn't hold two better children than Ronnie and me. Ronald, continuing his attack on Waterfield. Here, here. Waterfield, defending himself. Leave off, Ronald. Sheila, to Glenn. Though it wouldn't be for want of provocation if we did give a little trouble. Provocation? Stuff and nonsense. What are you talking about, Sheila? Ronald, advancing. Solemn fact, Rev. Sheila, plumping herself down beside Glenn and again slipping her arm through his. Oh, vicar. Nestling against him. Oh, ye banks and braes, our uncle and aunt. Ronald, in the middle of the room. Uncle Norton and Aunt Margaret. Now, shut up, Ronnie. Shut up, Sheila. Don't start that. Ronald, turning upon Waterfield. Yes, you'll defend him, Doc, cos Uncle Norton's always ailing, or imagines he is. Doctors love what you call em's hypochondriacs. Bask in them. Waterfield, throwing himself into the chair on the extreme left. <laughs> a modest invalid one could stick. And a modest invalid's modest wife. But, Columbus, the airs they give themselves. Sheila, withdrawing her arm from Glenn's and sitting upright. Overbearing, domineering, interfering. Selfish, jealous, greedy. Sheila, beating her knee with her fist. For the last six weeks, Marston Lodge has been simply hell. What? Sheila, resting her head against his shoulder. Simply most unpleasant. And who are they when all said and done? Yes, if I may put the question in the most ladylike language at my command, who the deuce is Uncle Norton? <laughs> Glynn rising and going to the fireplace. Be quiet, Waterfield. You encourage her. Sheila, to Waterfield demurely. Yes, you encourage me, Waterfield. Uncle Norton is a city knight. Sheila, curling her lip. 
A city knight who can't even invest his money properly. Anybody could have advised him that the makeup oil had let him down. Ah, pity your connection with the city is so recent, Ronald. Stop it, Rev. None of your sarcasm. And then my silly, sentimental mother takes him in as PGs. Fancy! One of the best houses in the park taking paying guests. Paying guests? Two and a half guineas a week. Not each, the pair. To do em justice, they stipulated for a monetary arrangement. To preserve their spirit of independence. So they might feel under no obligation. And for that munificent sum, they bag two of our largest bedrooms and my bathroom. And Mum's morning room for Uncle Norton's study. Precious soon they'll be seizing the top and bottom places at table. Aunt Meg has begun to carve. Glenn, coming to Ronald severely. Ronald? Now we're in for it. Pattering with her feet on the floor. La, la, la. Glenn, to Ronald. Do you consider it decent to tell me and Dr. Waterfield all this? Why, you know it, Rev. Another reason for not telling us. To Sheila, as Ronald lounges up to the left-hand window. As for you, yes, you may look down your nose. I don't believe you're your mother's daughter at all. Sheila rises, her head drooping. Ashamed of you. Ah, oh, no. There is good in me, Vicar, dear, heaps and heaps of good. But for the moment it's got buried under a mighty irresistible desire. Glenn, relenting. Desire? His hands on her shoulders fondly. What desire, child? Sheila, raising her beautiful, innocent eyes to his. To scrape my uncle and aunt to death with an oyster shell. Waterfield, jumping up and dancing with laughter. <laughs> Glynn, in spite of himself. <laughs> to Waterfield, reprovingly. Waterfield, Waterfield! <laughs> To Sheila. Bravo, old thing. <laughs> Ronald, leaving the window hurriedly. Look out, here they are. Retreating to the right-hand corner of the room, where Sheila joins him. Ready with the oyster shell, Sheila. Lady Ball Jennings and Sir Norton enter at the open window on the left. Lady Ball Jennings is a large, masterful, middle-aged woman with an aggressively cheerful manner. Sir Norton, a lank, loose-limbed man of fifty-five. Everything about him is run to seed. His skin is withered and sallow. His hair and long, mouse-colored mustache are thin and mildewy. His eyes weak and faded, and his clothes hang on him like a misfit. Lady Ball Jennings, bearing down on Glen. Vicar! Whoever would have thought it? Shaking hands with him vigorously. And I was saying to Sir Norton this very morning, I was afraid our taking up our boat here was keeping you away. Bless me, why should it? 
Lady Bull Jennings, tapping him with her sunshade. Ah, oh, people suffering from reverses are not always favourites, even with the clergy. Discovering Waterfield and going to him. The doctor, too. Shaking hands with Waterfield. We see more of him. Tapping him with her sunshade. But that's partly professional, isn't it? <laughs> Sir Norton, who has come forward and given a limp hand to Glynn, nodding to Waterfield. Doctor, we've met before today. Glynn, brushing an object from Sir Norton's jacket. Excuse me, wasp. Sir Norton, with a ghastly smile of resignation. Wasp? My dear vicar, there are more wasps in this garden than any other garden in the United Kingdom. Myriads. Sir Norton, to Waterfield, blinking. No danger, I suppose, doctor? Not much. Not much? Shaking her finger at Waterfield. Shows how little you know of the state of his blood. Oh, you general practitioners, how casual you are. Turning to Glynn. We heard sounds of merriment just now. Moving away. Go on with your joking. Don't let us be dampers. Sir Norton, moving away. No, don't let us be wet blankets, pray. Catching sight of Ronald, who's making himself scarce behind Sheila. Ronald, what are you doing here at this hour? Lady Ball Jennings, surveying Ronald through her glasses. What indeed? Ronald, advancing a step or two. Mother asked me to be back early, Uncle. Hmm, that won't answer, my boy. That won't get you to the top of the tree. No, that won't win you a knighthood. Tut, tut, tut. On the contrary. Lady Ball Jennings, to Ronald. However, since you are here, why don't you take your uncle's hat? Sir Norton gives his hat to Ronald and drops wearily into the chair at the farther end of the settee by the piano. And you, Sheila, can't you see I'm burdened with a sunshade? Come, come, bustle, bustle. Sheila, relieving Lady Ball Jennings of her sunshade. Sorry. And fetch me a fan, quickly. Seating herself on the settee by the piano. And you find one for your uncle, Ronald. Shop, shop, shop. Ronald and Sheila go out the door on the right, making hideous grimaces at Glynn as they pass him. Now, doctor, come and talk to me. Patting the settee on which she is sitting. Come along and be amusing. Waterfield, sitting beside her with forced alacrity. Certainly, uh, certainly. <laughs> Lady Ball Jennings, shaking her finger at Glynn, who is again at the fireplace. That bad, unchristian vicar removes himself from me as far as possible, I notice. Glynn, coming forward and sitting on the fauteuil stool. No, no. Calling Ridge and Luff, the latter a second and less imposing parlour-maid, enter at the door on the left carrying a low double-leaved tea-table. Collingridge has a tea-cloth of silk and lace tucked under her arm. They set the table in front of the settee on the right and raise the leaves. Then Collingridge unfolds the tea-cloth, and she and Luff lay it methodically. 
Lady Ball Jennings, elevating her eyebrows. What's this? The large tea table, Collingridge? Yes, my lady. And why the large table, may I inquire? The ordinary table is ample for two or three extra persons. Mrs. Herrick blew down the tube a little while ago, my lady, to say there's to be twelve altogether. Twelve? Twelve? Five are arriving later on, in a lump. In a lump? In a lump? The best tea cloth, too. Who are they, Collingridge? Collingridge, retiring, followed by Luff. Don't know, I'm sure, lady. As Collingridge and Luff go out at the door on the left, Sheila and Ronald return on the right. Lady Ball Jennings, receiving a fan from Sheila. Sheila, are you aware that your mother is giving a tea party this afternoon? Tea party, aunt? Don't echo me, there's a dear girl. Collingridge has orders to prepare tea for twelve. Five are yet to come. In a lump. Sheila, tossing her head. Really? Moving away. Good business. Good business. Sir Norton, as Ronald presents him with a fan. Perhaps you can enlighten us, my boy? Ronald, almost disrespectfully, joining Sheila at the music stool. Regret my inability to do so, sir. Wow, wow. Lady Ball Jennings, over her shoulder. Wow, wow? Is that the way you speak to your uncle? To Sir Norton. This accounts for Dorothy's note asking us to be on the spot this afternoon. Sir Norton to Glen. I assume, then, that you are here by invitation, vicar? Lady Ball Jennings to Waterfield. And you, doctor? Glen and Waterfield, nodding. Yes. Sir Norton, drawing in air through his teeth. The vicar of the parish and the doctor one can't see too much of. Lady Ball Jennings, tapping Waterfield with her fan. Can't see enough of. Sir Norton, leaning back in his chair and crossing his legs. But I confess I'm not always in the mood for a crowd. Most inconsiderate. Dorothy has two regular at-home days per month. Surely. I was content with two at-home days a month when I had my own establishment. Sir Norton, smiling painfully at Lady Ball Jennings. Ah, what sufficed for you, Margaret, in your important position? He is interrupted by the opening of the door on the right. Here is, dear Dorothy. Mrs. Herrick enters quietly. She is a timid, gentle, sweet-looking woman, some years younger than Lady Ball Jennings. She is carrying a handbag and has an anxious expression. Glenn and Waterfield rise eagerly to greet her. Mrs. Herrick, shaking hands with them clingingly. Vicar! Doctor! How kind of you! Kind of us? Ho, <laughs> ho! Glenn, patting her shoulder. My dear! Mrs. Herrick, to Ronald, who brushes past Sir Norton to that gentleman's evident annoyance, and comes to her, kissing him. 
They have let you off, then, my pet. Jack Lindenbaum was awfully civil, Mums. Yes, Ronald hasn't made himself so absolutely indispensable at the office, Dolly, that he can't be spared. Ha, ha, ha. No, it's at tea parties that Ronald is indispensable, it appears, Dorothy. Lady Bull Jennings, as Glenn, Waterfield, and Ronald move away in different directions, to Mrs. Herrick. Collingridge tells us you are expecting quite a big gathering this afternoon, Dolly dear. Glancing at her gown. You ought to have warned me. Mrs. Herrick laying her bag upon the round table nervously it's it's about the people who are coming by and by that i want to talk to you all they're not due till half past four to those who are standing please sit down everybody beckoning to glenn and indicating the chair behind the round table vicar to waterfield pointing at the fortier stool sit there doctor she seats herself in the chair on the left of the table, whereupon Glenn takes his place by her. Waterfield sits on the fauteuil stool, Ronald at the writing table, and Sheila on the music stool. Lady Ball Jennings, viewing Mrs. Herrick through her glasses. Why, Dolly, you're trembling. You are, positively. And how flushed your face is. Mrs. Herrick, putting her hands to her cheeks. <laughs> i'm afraid that what i'm doing won't in the least meet with your approval meg yours or norton's what you are doing and i know i shall get into dreadful hot water with my boy and girl into the bargain lady ball jennings consigning ronald and sheila to oblivion by a wave of her fan pish no you won't mums no you won't mother darling Mrs. Herrick, casting an appealing smile at Glynn and Waterfield. At any rate, I've taken the precaution to have my old and faithful friends near me. Glynn, touching her arm. Ah, <laughs> we'll stick up for you, Mrs. Herrick. We'll protect you. Go ahead. Yes, don't beat about the bush so, Dorothy. Who are Sir Norton and I to have the pleasure and privilege of helping you to entertain? They... they are not ordinary folks, Meg, dear, by any means. To Glynn and Waterfield, moistening her lips. Vicar, doctor, you've heard me speak of my brother Charles, my poor brother Charles who died in America the year before last. Often and i saw him once here of course i'd forgotten so did i charming fellow charming lady bull jennings her mouth hardening oh yes my brother charles had charm decidedly fatal gift lady bull jennings staring at mrs herrick startled but what in heaven's name Mrs. Herrick, to Glynn and Waterfield. I've never told you. It's the one bit of family history I've kept from you. I've never told you what his profession was. Glynn, shaking his head. No. Oh, I say, mother. 
mums gracious me you're not going to wash our dirty linen before mr glynn and dr waterfield dorothy sir norton closing his eyes mm. there was nothing discreditable in it only such things are apt to be misunderstood he was a proprietor of a circus and used to ride in the ring after driving round it in a gaudy coach with a team of white ponies there a nice revelation ronald half rising defiantly anyhow he was a jolly good sort aunt meg ronald, ronald. ripping top hole Shilla. he ran away from home when he was quite a lad he didn't get on well with my father with none of us with another wave of her fan it may have been our fault he was fond of me meg lady ball jennings fanning herself energetically he left you a miserable little legacy if that denotes affection mrs herrick picking up her bag and opening it poor charles's estate wasn't a large one and he knew i am very comfortably off producing a legal-looking document from the bag to glenn and waterfield the bulk of his money is held in trust to provide small annuities for some of the members of his troop quaking and and that brings me to the point point the the injunction he laid upon me which i have shamefully neglected lady ball jennings drawing a long breath oh i see mercy on us dorothy this is an act of lunacy mrs herrick hastily handing the document to glenn a c copy of my brother's will vicar glenn puts on his pince-nez it didn't get into the english papers he was an american citizen and had no property in this country glenn reading the endorsement will of charles holbrook smith otherwise carlo sagantini he called himself sagantini in business replacing the bag on the table open it and read the clause i've marked in pencil helping Glynn to find the passage. This one. Read it aloud. Prompting him. And without seeking... Glenn, reading. And without seeking to impose it as a legal obligation, I entreat my sister Dorothy to avail herself of any opportunity that may arise to extend to the several persons benefiting by this trust to whom i have become attached from long and intimate association such practical sympathy and kindness as her heart will dictate lady ball jennings fuming dorothy i said it again and again and i repeat it if ever there was an absurd heedless request outrageous mrs herrick to glenn and waterfield there are seventeen beneficiaries were to be exact two have passed away 
10 are fulfilling engagements on the continent, and the rest have been in London for over a month. Until the last few days, I've scarcely taken the slightest notice of them. Fiddle! You were sending fruit and poultry to a horrible address in South Lambeth weeks ago, to my own knowledge. I saw it in the tradesmen's books. Fruit and poultry? Do you think that is what poor Charles meant, Margaret? Putting the document back into the bag. No. No, no. Ronald, rejoicing at the chance of annoying his uncle and aunt, rising. No, of course it isn't. Sheila, also bobbing up in the same spirit. Certainly not. Glenn and Waterfield to Ronald and Sheila. Sit, Sit down. down. Mrs. Herrick, as Ronald and Sheila subside. No. He intended that I should take them under my wing if they drifted to London and make them part of my life. Sir Norton and Lady Bull Jennings, throwing up their hands. Oh! Mrs. Herrick, starting to her feet. And the first step towards carrying out Charles's wish? Moving to the middle of the room. I am extremely sorry, Norton. I am extremely sorry, Meg, if I have upset you. The first step toward it is, as you have guessed, five of them will be here to tea presently. In a lump. Y yes After a moment's pause, Lady Ball Jennings and Sir Norton rise and walk across to the fireplace with unnatural calmness. Then Ronald and Sheila and Glenn and Waterfield rise and surround Mrs. Herrick. Ronald, embracing Mrs. Herrick exultingly. Good old mums, eh, Sheila? Sheila, pulling Mrs. Herrick away from Ronald and kissing her. Gold medal! Oh, my dear children, I'm so glad you're not angry with me. Ronald, dropping into the chair on the left of the round table and sticking his legs out. Angry? Sheila, sitting on the settee by the piano. Not us! Mrs. Herrick, to Glenn and Waterfield, giving each a hand. Vicar? Doctor? Glenn, pressing her hand. And you were inclined to apologize for your brother's profession? Splendid chap. Worthy of his sister. Waterfield, dubiously, rubbing his head. Hope they won't presume on your good nature, though, Mrs. Herrick. Mrs. Herrick, reproachfully. Oh, doctor. Leaving Glenn and Waterfield and seating herself beside Sheila. If you had seen them and chatted with them as I have in the humble lodgings, you wouldn't be anxious on that score. Sheila, her arm around Mrs. Herrick. Oh, this is why you've been giving me the slip lately, artful woman. Mrs. Herrick to Waterfield. They're out of shop, as they term it, and their annuities are barely enough to keep their heads above water. But the pride is wonderful. Lady Bull Jennings, breaking in. The females of the party, if there are any... Daring equestrians? Muscular ladies who leap through hoops. And the men? Jockeys, acrobats, buffoons. 
to drink tea in the company of a clown in mufti would be an interesting experience <laughs> no margaret the poor souls who are coming don't don't perform strictly speaking not no they they're freaks meg freaks freaks F freaks F -f freaks human oddities doomed to exhibit themselves as a sideshow of a circus or in a booth at a fair ronald rising and joining glenn and waterfield oh mums sheila withdrawing her arm from mrs herrick and edging to the end of the settee mother mrs herrick in a flutter oh but they wouldn't stoop to a fair the rise of the cinema has knocked the stuffing out of the circus mr tilney says but they'd die sooner than stoop to a fair tilney who's tilney he's the leading spirit of the little group he shepherds them as it were and what species of monstrosity does mr tilney belong to he's he's a skeleton skeleton a living skeleton living the the skeleton nut is his professional description he, he's he's quite a superior young man again there is a short pause and then waterfield turns away abruptly and sitting in the chair on the left of the oblong table hides his face in his hands lady bull jennings advances and sir norton waving his arms paces up and down on the right lady bull jennings at the chair on the left of the round table dorothy ronald going to the open window my hat sheila rising and flouncing away to her brother as glenn seats himself on the fautia's stool and gazes fixedly at the carpet mums how could you mrs herrick searching for her handkerchief tearfully D -d don't be cruel children trying to repress a sob the sight of him isn't at all repellent wiping her eyes he's terribly thin but he tells me his bones don't actually protrude till he's had a fortnight's training waterfield unable to contain himself <laughs> mrs herrick beseechingly doctor nothing to laugh at doc should think not <laughs> waterfield waterfield lady bull jennings who is now sitting glaring into space is this a dream sir norton sinking into the chair at the farther side of the fireplace i a nightmare <laughs> doctor, doctor waterfield. waterfield the toot of a motor-horn sounding not far off on the right produces silence ronald after a pause car mrs herrick holding her heart that they're, they're before their time the horn sounds again impatiently it's it's proctor's motor charbank 
I, I hired it to bring them over. Ye gods, an open vehicle! Sheila, you're brutal. It was the only conveyance I could hit upon that would accommodate the giant's legs. Lady Bull Jennings, falling back in her chair. G -g giant Sir Norton, struggling to his feet. Giant? Giant? Glen Ann Waterfield, rising, the former with a doubtful look, the latter with twinkling eyes and his hand over his mouth. Giant? Mrs. Herrick, in distress. Oh, 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 don't you desert me, vicar. To Waterfield. Doctor, he's an exceedingly gentle, inoffensive creature. Hark! Everybody listens. Some shrill treble voices are heard cheering. Cheers! Sir Norton, clasping his temples. The populace. Oh, confound it, mums! Sheila, flopping against Ronald. <laughs> the cheering is repeated. Lady Baljennings rises and goes to Sir Norton in a trance. Mrs. Herrick, her head on the rail of the settee, her eyes closed. I remember. Proctor's boy was present when I gave the order. I, I was obliged to explain to Proctor. The lad must have told his playmates. The door on the right opens, and Collingridge appears. Her aspect is wild, and she is clutching her bosom. Mrs. Herrick pulls herself together and rises. My guests? Collingridge, supporting herself by the door handle, murmurs an inarticulate affirmative. At the same moment, Tilney is heard speaking in the hall. Now, you don't want your cap, Jimmy. Neither do you, Tom. Lay him on the table. Julie, take Jimmy's cap from him. No, no, Rosa, keep your hat on. You're a lady. Follow me, the lot of you. Ready? One, two, three, go. Horatio Tilney enters briskly. A young man of three and thirty, with a pale face and sunken cheeks and an emaciated body. His shabby suit of blue serge fits him tightly and accentuates his leanness, but his clean linen and gay necktie give him a smart air, and his manner is simple and engaging and full of quiet humor. Mrs. Herrick advances to him, and he shakes hands with her warmly. Here we are, ma'am. Most enjoyable ride, and an enthusiastic demonstration from the juveniles outside. Mrs. Herrick, to Glynn and Waterfield. Vicar? Doctor? To Tilney, as they come forward. Mr. Glynn, our vicar. Dr. Waterfield. Mr. Tilney? Tilney, going to them and shaking hands with them. How are you, sir? And you, sir? Glad to make your acquaintance. M my sister, Lady Ball Jennings, Sir Norton Ball Jennings. Tilney, going to Sheila and Ronald and shaking hands with them. How are you, ma'am? Uh, pardon. Ought to say, m'lady, oughtn't I? To Ronald. How are you, sir? Ronald, frowning. No, 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 no. We're... Uh, no, no, that's my son and daughter. Ha! <laughs> ha! 
thought there was something wrong my mistake going to lady Jennings and sir norton and shaking hands with them now we're right aren't we and no harm done <laughs> lady Jennings and sir norton accept tilney's salutation helplessly sheila and ronald astonished at tilney's freedom titter to each other and waterfield is again convulsed mrs herrick her hand to her brow where where are the others by jove yes you may well ask ma'am by the tea-table calling into the hall oh i say jimmy wake up there give him a shove somebody to mrs herrick they're shy ma'am they're shy to those in the hall that's the ticket all together at last we've got a move on don't be funky jimmy don't be funky old man james eddowes enters reluctantly closely followed by julie maud pratt thomas quincy pratt and rosa balmano eddowes who is muffled up in a rusty black cloak reaching below his knees is about thirty-five years of age and between eight and nine feet high his hair is long and clubbed his face of a sickly colour his expression sad and wistful the two prats are midgets with lined wizened features a tottery gait and heads which being too heavy for their necks have a tendency to lop to one side notwithstanding their physical defects however they have a cute look and are obviously very vain rosa is a short almost stunted young woman of two-and-twenty with the frame of a gymnast she resembles her comrades in the unhealthy pallor of her complexion but her eyes are big and luminous and her whole personality is arresting she and julie are dressed in their best cheaply and tawdrily julie especially aiming at the extreme of fashion pratt wears a frock coat and a fancy waistcoat both belonging to a bygone period and has a large flower in his buttonhole and his tiny feet are encased in brand-new patent leather shoes as soon as the visitors are in the room collingridge escapes from it quickly slamming the door behind her tilney bringing eddowes to mrs herrick shake hands with the kind lady jimmy eddowes obeys dully and mechanically capital presenting eddowes to the company while mrs herrick greets the prats and rosa this is james eddowes ladies and gentlemen born at megavisi in cornwall where he was discovered by Mr. Segantini in the year 1895, weren't you, Jimmy? Yes. Gee, that's the way to rattle on. Leading Eddowes round the room. Make your bow, Jimmy. Eddowes bows like an automaton to Glenn and Waterfield. And again. Eddowes bows to Sheila and Ronald. First rate. As Eddowes faces Sir Norton and Lady Jennings. Tell the ladies and gentlemen how tall you are, Jimmy. Eight feet, two inches, in my stockings. Eight feet, two, in his stockings or socks. Pointing to the chair behind the round table. Sit down, old man. Settling Eddowes in a chair and loosening the collar of his cloak. Excuse his cloak. We keep him wrapped up, indoors and out, all weathers. He's delicate. To Eddowes, patting him on the back. There you are. Not frightened now, Jimmy, are we? No. 
Tilney, motioning the Prats to come forward. Julie? Tom? The little people stumble in their haste to get to him. He catches them dexterously and steadies them. Hold up, Julie. Steady on your pins, Thomas Quincy. He presents them to the company, straightening their heads on their shoulders and putting them generally in order as he does so. Julie Maud Pratt, Thomas Quincy Pratt, natives of the state of Illinois in America, and reputed to be the smallest adults living. Stopped growing, Julie when she was seven, Tom when he was nine, but are remarkably intelligent. To Pratt. Aren't you, Thomas? Pratt with a strong American drawl inflating his little chest. I believe so. Tilney, to Julie. And you, Julie Maud? Julie, with the same accent, leeringly. Shouldn't I be surprised? Make your bow, Tom. Make your bow, Julie. Leading them round the room. Hardly a habitable spot on the globe they haven't been shown at presenting them to Lady Bulgennings and Sir Norton. Decorated by three presidents and two crowned heads. To the Pratts. Got your medals at home, haven't you? Yes. We have. You're through. He picks Julie up lightly and plops her into the chair on the left of the round table. Then he tucks Pratt under his arm and carries him to the settee by the piano and deposits him there. Having thus disposed of the Pratts, Tilney calls to Rosa. Rosa? She advances to him slowly, with a half-scared, half-sullen look. Miss Rosa Balmano, ladies and gentlemen, the human knot, has the gift of tying herself into a knot with her arms and legs which she defies the strength of a dozen men to unravel. Don't you, Rosa? Rosa, hanging her head. Twenty men couldn't untie me. Rosa was born under canvas at Aberoth in Scotland, of mixed parentage, Irish mother, Spanish father, originally apprenticed to the high and lofty, but lost her nerve at the age of ten, and was turned over to us as a specialty. Adjusting a string of common beads at Rosa's throat. Weren't you, old woman? Rosa, making a lip. Never could do nothing except my knot. A limited but brilliant repertory. <laughs> Rosa, scowling at him. Now then, Raish, cheese it. <laughs> Leading her round. Miss Rosa Balmano. Sir Norton, standing with Lady Bulgennings, her arm through his, to Tilney, with ironical politeness. Your claim to distinction, I gather, Mr. Uh... Mrs. Herrick, who has seated herself on the settee on the right and is plucking apprehensively at the tablecloth. T-t-tilney. Your claim to distinction is your abnormal lack of flesh. Tilney, putting Rosa onto the fauteuil stool. That's it, sir and I really blush for being so frightfully out of form, fat as a pig. Sir Norton, regarding him curiously. And your origin? Tilney, with a change of manner. Oh. His tongue in his cheek. Oh, I was found at a workhouse door in a washerwoman's basket with a bottle of skim milk. 
seeing that Pratt has sunk into a heap and hurrying to him. Whoop! Sustain yourself, Thomas Quincy. Sheila and Ronald, completely won over by Tilney's good humor, looking on laughingly while he shakes the little fellow up. <laughs> Glenn and Waterfield, also highly amused. <laughs> Lady Bull Jennings, retiring with Sir Norton to the corner seat. Revolting! Tilney, putting a finishing touch to Pratt. Accidents will happen, won't they, Mr. Pratt? Sitting in the chair at the farther end of the settee by the piano and pulling off Pratt's left-hand glove. To Rosa. Better take your gloves off, Rosa, or you'll mess em when tea comes. To Julie. And you, Julie Maud. Waterfield seats himself beside Pratt and removes the right-hand glove. Thank you, sir. Glenn sits in the chair on the extreme left. Jimmy dropped his gloves on the road. To Edows. Didn't you, Jimmy? Edows, sitting like a carved image. Yes. Julie, taking off a glove. Careless. Yes, and that was new for the occasion. Displaying his shoes. Same as my shoes. Tilney, folding Pratt's gloves neatly and pocketing them. <laughs> you conceited little monkey. Pratt to Glenn and Waterfield. Do you want to have dollars and shoes, gentlemen? Beautiful. Worth double. Pratt, pointing to Tilney's necktie. Rachel Burtis's ties morning at the same emporium. Tilney, slapping Pratt's hand. <laughs> you needn't give me away, Thomas Quincy. There is more laughter from Sheila and Ronald and from Glenn and Waterfield. Rosa, to Tilney. Raish? Tilney, turning to her. Hello. She rolls her gloves, which are of white cotton, into a ball and throws them at him. He catches them deftly and puts them into his pocket. Rosa and Tilney, as he catches them, unconsciously with a gesture from the circus. Hi! Sheila, running to Julie, who, having taken off one glove, is unsuccessfully tugging at the other. Scissors! That atom will have a fit! To Julie. Let me! Thanks! I can very well slide out of my gloves without outside help. <laughs> as you please. The glove comes off suddenly and, as a result, Julie collapses. There now. Collecting her and straightening her head. <laughs> Pratt, relishing the mishap. <laughs> Thomas Quincy, you just shut your face. Julie, Julie. Sheila, giving Julie's gloves to Tilney, who rises to receive them. What an awfully good mother you are to them all, Mr. Um. Puzzled. Raish? Short for Horatio, my Christian name. They continue talking, Luff carrying a stand containing two uncut cakes upon dishes and a plate of sweet biscuits, opens the door on the left to omit Collingridge, who enters with a tray on which are cups and saucers, a jug of milk, and another of cream, a sugar basin, etc. The trays, jugs, and sugar basin are of silver. 
Collingridge, whose eyes are bolting, staggers slightly at the sight of Julian Eddowes. Luff, at her heels, is similarly affected. Mrs. Herrick, as Collingridge sets the tray upon the tea-table. Don't bring in tea till I ring for it, Collingridge. Collingridge, controlling her emotions. No, madam. She goes out stiffly at the door on the right. Luff places the stand in front of the tea-table and follows her. Mrs. Herrig watches the servants out of the room. Julie, admiring the silver. Ma, but that's fine. To Pratt. Thomas Quincy. Yes, Julie Maud. Julie, pointing to the silver. Notice the medal. <laughs> Tilney, to Julie. Julie? Mrs. Herrig, turning and addressing Tilney. B -b Before we have tea, I should like to say a few words to you, Mr. Tilney, you and your companions. Certainly, ma'am. And after tea, we'll go round the garden and see the flowers. Julie, one eye on Mrs. Herrick, the other on the cakes. After tea. Mrs. Herrick, to Julie. Yes, dear, I said after tea. Tilney, to Julie. The lady said, after tea, Julie. Julie, to Pratt. Thomas Quincy. Yes, Julie Maud. Julie, pointing to the cakes. Notice the cakes. <laughs> Sheila, to Rosa. May I sit beside you? Rosa, shifting to the end of the fauteuil stool. I don't mind. Tilney, to Rosa. Yes, you do, Rosa. You know you'll be delighted if the young lady sits next to you. To Sheila, with a wink. She's shy, miss. She's shy. Rosa, to Tilney, as Sheila sits beside her and takes her hand. Told ya, fore we come out, I hain't used as a sincerity. Yes, you are, Rosa. Think of the thousands of people you've shaken hands with in business. Not used to. To Mrs. Herrick. Beg your pardon, ma'am. He resumes his seat, and Ronald perches himself upon the edge of the oblong table. Mrs. Herrick, gaining firmness as she proceeds. In the first place, Mr. Tilney, I, I bid you all a hearty welcome to Marsden Lodge. I, I ought to have asked you earlier, as soon as I heard that you were in London, but I... Well, I didn't. I'm better late than never, ma'am. Now, however, that we've broken the ice, I... Julie, crinkling her forehead. Broke what, ass? <sighs> now that we've broken the ice, I trust that as long as we are within easy reach of each other, you will be frequent visitors here. You're... you're a brick, ma'am. To Eddowes. Hear that, Jimmy? Yes. Hear that, Rosa? Rosa, her eyes on the ground. Yes? Tilney, bringing his hands together softly as a hint to Pratt. Thomas Quincy. Pratt, clapping his hands. <laughs> Julie Maud. They give Mrs. Herrick a round of applause, perfunctorily on the part of Eddowes and Rosa. 
Waterfield is seized with contortions and again hides his face in his hands. Glenn to Waterfield. Waterfield! Waterfield! Mrs. Herrick to the applauders. Th thank you! Fanning herself with her handkerchief and then gently dabbing her brow. This leads to a suggestion I have to make to you, which is, which is that while the summer lasts, two or three of you should spend every weekend at Marsden Lodge, Saturday to Monday, and be as much as possible in the fresh air. Ronald and Sheila and Glenn and Waterfield stare at Mrs. Herrick in amazement, and Sir Norton and Lady Bull Jennings, their eyes starting out of their heads, and their mouths open, rise and come to the fireplace. I, I am sorry I am unable to put you all up at once, but you must accept the will for the deed. Dabbing her brow again. What do you say, Mr. Tilney? Shall we begin next Saturday? By Jove, ma'am, your, your kindness almost takes my breath away. Hear the lady's proposal, Jimmy? Yes. Rosa? Yes. Julie Maud? Thomas Quincy? The five are about to start another round of applause, but Mrs. Herrick checks them by raising her hands appealingly. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. To Tilney. Who, who shall be the first, Mr. Tilney? Jimmy, for one, ma'am, if agreeable to you. Eddowes stirs uneasily. Jimmy's more in need of fresh air than any of us. Aren't you, Jimmy? Eddowes, quaking. No. Yes, you are, Jimmy. To Mrs. Herrick. Let Jimmy and Rosa be the first, ma'am. She's never happy when he's out of her sight. He's her baby. Isn't he, Rosa? Yes. Julie, snappishly. Guess he ain't Rosa's baby more'n he is mine. Julie, Julie. What, Julie Maud? When it was through your meddling with him while I was lying sick in my cabin that he caught spat cold on board the steamer. Shh, shh. You dare accuse me of that, Rosa Balmano? Silence. I call Raisha to witness. Tilney rises authoritatively. Raisha, I call you to witness. Collapsing again. Oh. Tilney, shaking her up roughly. Serve you right, you nasty little vixen. <laughs> Thomas Quincy. Tilney, straightening her head. Quiet, will you? Lady Bull Jennings, clutching at Sir Norton. Oh, oh dear. Very well, Mr. Tilney. It's decided, then, that Mr. Eddowes and Miss Balmano come to me on Saturday. Extending her hand to him across the table. You and I will settle the details in the garden. Tilney, grasping her hand and retaining it. Ma'am, I... I... Ah... Uh. Finding himself at a loss for words, he releases her hand and goes to Pratt and lifts him off the settee. You give us a speech, Thomas, one of your best. Sitting beside Waterfield and holding Pratt in front of him, to Mrs. Herrick. Thomas Quincy's our official orator, ma'am, not I. He's our Roosevelt, aren't you, Tom? Pratt, puffing himself out again. You bet. 
Tilney to Pratt. Listen to me. You've got to express our gratitude to the warmest-hearted lady that walks God's earth. Straightening Pratt's head. See, old man? Pratt, shooting his cuffs. Why, sure. Tilney, in Pratt's ear. Ladies and gentlemen. Pratt, oratorically. Ladies and gentlemen. Rosa, Edows, and Julie, the latter very sourly, applaud as if from habit. Ladies and gentlemen, I have the honor of returning thanks for the truly magnificent reception you have accorded us during our visit to your important city. No, no, Tom. Sheila and Ronald and Glenn and Waterfield clap their hands laughingly. Rosa and Eddowes look askance at Pratt, their faces full of concern, and Julie cocks her nose in derision. Pratt, sticking his thumbs into the armholes of his waistcoat. And I beg leave to say that we are looking forward with feelings of pleasurable anticipation to renewing our acquaintance with this numerous and distinguished assemblage. <laughs> To Mrs. Herrick, apologetically. This is his stock farewell speech, ma'am. He's excited. His brain's not working. Sheila, to Tilney. Oh, don't interrupt him. To Pratt. Go on. Pratt, elated by his success. In conclusion, I wish you all good health, long life, and prosperity. Blowing kisses. And now, on behalf of myself and confreres, in the language of the celebrated poem, I will say au revoir, but not goodbye. There is more applause and laughter, which Pratt acknowledges by bowing, and then Sheila rises impulsively and picks the little fellow up. Sheila, sitting with Pratt upon her lap in the chair at the farther end of the settee by the piano. <laughs> Hugging him. Oh, you dear, dicky little chap. Julie, thoroughly in a bad temper, to Sheila. Hiya, if you have no objection, I'll just trouble you to put my husband down. Julie? Husband? Yes, they... the husband and wife, Sheila. Sheila, getting rid of Pratt hastily. I thought they were brother and sister. Shucks. I ought to have mentioned. Old married couple. Pratt, in the middle of the room. Yes. Pointing to Julie. That lady and me has been married years. Rakishly. I'm forty-one. Julie, tumbling herself out of her chair and grabbing Pratt by his coat collar. Forty-one. Shaking him. And you're behaving like a perfect boob. Tilney, dashing at them and separating them. Gee! He puts Pratt into the chair and Julie upon the fauteuil stool, and then stands over her, threatening her with his forefinger. Ronald, while this is going on, jumping about in glee. <laughs> Sheila! <laughs> Sheila, rocking herself to and fro hysterically. Oh, crumbs! Ho, 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 ho! 
Waterfield, Waterfield. Lady Bull Jennings to Sir Norton. Disgusting. Sir Norton to Lady Bull Jennings. Loathsome. Mrs. Herrick, her head thrown back and her eyes closed, exhausted. Ring for tea. Sir Norton hurries to one bell push, Lady Bull Jennings to the other. For mercy's sake, ring for tea. End of Act One.